0: This is an ABC podcast. Why don't you
1: Google cock rings no. and how they work? I think that'll help you out. I'm at the ABC. Out. They'll knock me off the <laughs> internet if I do that.
0: Be surprised if we have a podcast after this. Bang. <laughs> Bang. 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 Bang.
1: Bang on. Hello, Zan. G'day, g'day. How are you going? I'm Sorry. good. Are you all right? I feel like I need to <laughs> So sorry, everyone. It just came on right as I was about to start. As I press play, you just like. <laughs> sorry. It's all right. It It, happens. It's gone away now. Oh, good. I was hoping for a big belch. Yeah, I know. Big bang on belch. Yeah. Oh, that would be good. Yeah. But no, it it went away. Well, for
0: some people, I don't know if many of the bang fam who are ready for their capture of music, art,
1: life and stuff would just be ready for a burp. I think they're ready for anything. I think that's what I like about the bang on (laughs) audience. Everyone that listens is one of us and we're ready for anything. It's
0: so true. There's actually some beautiful reviews that have popped through and a couple of emails. We're going to get into the bang box later on because
1: people continue to ask questions. Oh, I love this. and we're going to continue to try and answer them try i think just try not there's no actual advice um, or facts yeah. involved <laughs> but we'll have a chat legitimate so legitimate yeah. questions exactly how last, are you
0: well i was going to say last time i saw you i'm mm. um, well um, it was the kickoff day of the melbourne international film festival better known as mif mm. and mif was hosting mif <laughs>
1: Yes, Which I was see the opening
0: night. You did make the joke. Did you hear me hoot and holler? I said and holler
1: and I was, did. And I was I like, did. "Yay!" I did. I did it. I did and I and I heard you and I heard a lot of love in the room. It was great. Um, It was, yeah, it was just gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. That was my one joke. That's all I needed to do. They didn't want me to do much else other than just swiftly introduce all the people because speeches at an opening film night uh, are often, you know, sometimes the process can be a little long and, mm. and I think, you know, there's a lot of thank yous to do. And people want to see the film too and they know they've got two hours beyond it so you've got to keep it short and sharp and yep. that was my job. And You did a great job. I had a great time. Yeah.
0: lovely time. It was a beautiful film too and interestingly the filmmakers did keep it short because they you could tell they were big myth and film festival oh, fans. thank you, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the film was of an age. I think it's going to get a broad release and it's actually got a heap of um, screenings. If you're anywhere in Victoria because MIF goes beyond Melbourne City, it's Yeah, I saw everywhere. that. They're in
1: Mildura where I grew up, Yeah, Bendigo, Ballarat, all regional towns. Look it up. And I think it's this weekend that it's actually screening if you're listening early. Fantastic! Just get it's in there. A
0: beautiful film, coming of age film in um, the outer Melbourne suburbs of two queer guys. One of whom is just kind of figuring out his identity, um, and just wonderful to watch. And yeah, the the filmmaker was kind of like, "I've been to these things. I know you just want to watch the film. Thanks, thanks, thanks. I'm not going to mention names. Enjoy. I love like, that. I love you. This is well, perfect. Yeah,
1: perfect. No, it was it was a great week, very exciting week. What did you get up to other than that? I went under the for the first time. Under what does that mean? You uh, and back in the room, <laughs> hypnotherapy. I've had hypnotherapy. We can talk about that, but no, not quite. No, what
0: was it? Um, I had a general anaesthetic for the first time in my life, which I think that at my age is pretty damn lucky. Absolutely. I've never broken a bone, have to have any sort of major procedure. I've kept pretty good health, but I have had this kind of niggling feeling of something being stuck in the back mm. of my throat, and my GP was like, "It's probably just acid reflux." You're old now, uh, but I was like, "I'm um, get worried." Ch- 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 my
1: changes, my turn and face
0: the flux. Ch- ch- changes. I am. Um, my voice is my my paycheck. You know. Yeah. So I was like, "Oh, I just want to double check it and rule it out." So I um, went for a day procedure into a hospital and got put under with the general anaesthetic mm. and got a camera shoved down my gullet. Um, And can I say I was very nervous beforehand because – being put under is like, it's a loss of control. You know me. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I not like to lose I control. But also. <laughs> but it's it's also like, love asleep. There's a reason <laughs> that Anna Anise- said, I love asleep, but there's a reason that anesthesiologists get paid so much is because they hold your life in their heads. They do. And I was like, what if they give you too much and this is goodbye? I was telling Jeffy I loved him several times as he dropped Aww. me off. <laughs> it's like, if I never see you again. He was like, stop. He didn't realise I'd never been under a general. And later that day, he's like, oh, my God, no wonder you were nervous. I thought that Aww. you'd had them before. So it all went well. My insides look great, i oh, I say. Great. That's good. <laughs> Very healthy. Yeah. And I think I'm just old and have acid reflux. So shout-outs to all the Bang fam who now, when you drink some wine, have some coffee, maybe some tomatoes, some bread, basically all the things all that the you things enjoy you like. in life Yeah.
1: Um, and, and you suffer for them. I'm now one of you yeah. and it welcome. sucks. Welcome. It I've sucks. been here for a while, so welcome. <laughs> Always walking around with a quick ease. That's just <laughs> the rest of my life, really. God. What's happened to us? Lots of little surprises.
0: I know. It was a very sad week in music in Australia this week. I just wanted to... Can it get any worse? Yeah, pay tribute to a few legends, in fact, because the last week and a half has really dealt a blow to Australian music and and particularly to musicians from Victoria. Olivia Newton-John died earlier this week. We got the news through on Tuesday. A massive outpouring of love for someone who didn't just bring joy with her music, but through her huge work as an advocate for cancer patients, literally setting up foundations and cancer treatment centres. Seems like from all accounts would spend time with people um, in these centres and just people in general who needed a lift and she was there to bring that joy. So it's really sad news that ONJ passed and it's the the outpouring has continued for yeah. days around the world, hasn't it? Well, I
1: think for a lot of lot of us who grew up in a certain period of time in Australia to see what she could achieve and what she did achieve. With her spirit and her magic intact. She always just seems so full of life and joy. Mm. Um, I, I don't know, as a little kid, I mean Zandardew was the first record I ever bought with my own money. So as a little kid she was quite an inspiration. And seeing an Australian woman on screen on in Greece with an Australian accent. Yeah. That was pretty rare in those days and in fact it's probably still quite rare um and and that was a bit of an education in being a teenager too so i think that's not just for our generation for for many subsequently so i feel like she's been part of that early very formative understanding of of what's going to happen to us mm. and so you hold that really dear and really close mm. and and she was beautiful she was a beautiful singer as well and her songs were awesome. Like all that stuff on Xanadu, the film was shit, let's be honest. But the soundtrack with ELO and Jeff Lynne, amazing. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. And, yeah, and her voice. My goodness. It was pure. She never mucked around, never did the the vocal sort of, um, you know, roller coaster. There was never any of that. It was just pure and simple. She had a beautiful tone and I think we could all – we all connected to that. There was something very sort of – older sisterly-like about it or something. It was just beautiful, very calming.
0: I once got the opportunity to hear her voice isolated because after the Sound Relief concert, which is one of those big fundraising concerts, she was on stage with Barry Gibb Mm. and they were singing together and um, someone I work with had the job of mixing that concert down, which was a live concert, but for the DVD and CD release. And he was in the middle of doing it and I just went to the studio that he was in to ask him about something else and he was like, hey, just listen to this, and he Aww. just isolated her voice.
1: Oh, my God.
0: And it was flawless. Yeah. It was just pitch perfect, flawless, honey-soaked vocal, what you heard was what you got. That was Olivia Newton-John. Yeah. And it was amazing to hear that and also amazing to remember that. I think there was a big generation of people who maybe didn't realise that she sold a 100 million records. Mm. You know, she had this whole country pop career as well because her last 30 years or so has been very much in an advocate role Mm. and working with this other side of her life, but she had a huge music career too. And to be reminded of that and to just see how many people's childhoods, regardless of whether you grew up in the 80s or not, Mm. she affected because Greece was a coming of age film. It was kind of that thing that everyone experienced no matter how old you were at a certain point in your young teens. It was just really beautiful to see what a huge effect she had yes. and a huge effect she had on other artists like Kylie Minogue's post,
1: yeah, beautiful post gorgeous. talking about how special she was. And let's not forget Koala Blue, the uh, store that she had in LA for many, many God, years. God, I did
0: forget about Koala <laughs> Blue. Thank you for bringing
1: Koala Blue back taking, into my world. Taking Australian produce and Australian Australian goods to the LA market when Australia was like really getting it out there. <laughs> 80s style, Kendoan style yes. was amazing. Australia's perfume style um, Oh, my God, Astralis. Yeah. Well, she was sort of <laughs> at the forefront of that as well. So there's been a lot of giving back Yeah, from Olivia. And she was an advocate for uh, a lot of alternative therapies, some of which aren't legal here in this country. And she knew that that would damage her brand, and, but she also knew that at how much it helped her and her own cancer treatment. And she was prepared to do that for others Yeah, here in Australia because she knew that this was an important thing to do. So what a woman, really.
0: And another woman who took Australia to the world out the front of the Seekers, Judith Durham, also died after a long illness. Um, you know, again, two women that we knew were unwell, but it was still very sad and, and, and shocked to hear that she'd passed away. That This was a period, like take it back another 10, 15 mm. years, where – The idea of being played on radio outside of Australia was just so foreign. This was the 60s, you know, 1967, when the Seekers are having this huge hit with Georgie Girl and and the songs that followed. Mm. And Judith Durham, again, so many people just talking about what a salt of the earth human she was, how she had time for everyone, and just such a generous spirit. And again, with an incredibly beautiful and sweet voice. Like, Mm. these were the voices that introduced Australia to the world
1: and, and, and said, hey, this is what's going on in our backyard. Quite phenomenal. Yeah. A very sad loss, definitely. And she had been ill for quite some time, but it doesn't, doesn't mean it's any easier, I mm. think, because there aren't that many trailblazing women in music. There, yeah. there, there really aren't. And I think that's something I've noticed a lot of late. And when you lose them, it does it does feel like that, that period of time is, yeah, we, we're going to miss them essentially from the landscape too in terms of what they contribute and, and, and I guess the role that they played as trailblazers for all of us. But they do leave a legacy and there's so many women. And,
0: and, and other artists who, who have taken on you know the, what they've seen as little kids and gone, okay, I can do this, I can mm. be there, I can be up on that stage. Someone who gave voice to so many other people through his songs also left us in the last week and a half. Archie Roach, another Victorian, incredible yeah. musician, amazing storyteller, a truth teller, who really just changed the conversation with his debut record, Charcoal Lane. It's hard to wrap the life of Archie Roach, and I think that there are many other people who have done it way better than I'm even going to attempt to do, but I
1: just feel so grateful to have lived in the time of Archie, to have seen him live. And one of the most beautiful people to talk to Just gorgeous And he was In the last few years The the few times I'd spoken to him He was struggling You know He was on oxygen predominantly Mm. Um, He wasn't well But he always made time He always showed up And he was just beautiful Absolutely beautiful Around the time of the release of his book Tell Me Why Which again is is, is, I think it's an essential read Mm. Every person in Australia should read that book Because it's it's about the stolen generations and of which he was a member and when you read from his perspective y- you can understand the cruelty and the intergenerational trauma and all of those things it, it it's absolutely absolutely real and brutal and he just b- wrote so beautifully about it um yeah i reckon that that book should be on the curriculum he was incredible
0: he dedicated his life to education He's, I spoke to him about a year and a half ago um, when he was making, you know, re- revisiting Charcoal Lane and, and doing new recordings of it around yeah. his kitchen table, which is where he always wrote. And he said, you know, I, I share my story so that others can share their story too. And he really did. Like he, he revisited some incredibly traumatic yeah, parts of his life, many different periods of his life that were very hard and that not many people would actively go back and visit, but He did that because he knew that in sharing that other people would feel safe to share their story and the more people that share, you don't just get it off your chest but you change the way that we talk about and live together and work together and exist together. You change the conversation Mm. and he dedicated his life to that through his music, through his biography, through his children's book, through YouTube videos talking about his songs. He never stopped. He always turned up. So thank you. Archie Roach for everything. Um, it is such a loss, but mm. you leave such a legacy. Absolutely. Miff, you shared an interesting piece with me this mm. week off the back of Malcolm Gladwell, very well-known author, speaking on a podcast called Diary of a CEO Now, for anybody who doesn't know Malcolm Gladwell, before we get into this, he's the author of a couple of books. He's kind of a a thinker, a futurist,
1: a futurist. You know, he's a trend forecaster, I guess. The tipping point was the book that broke it for him, and that was all about what makes something go from being, I guess, a a a cult interest or has small audience base to them having that tipping point and. Blowing up globally. Oh, like Bang On. Absolutely. Like this podcast. (laughs) Yes. Yes, exactly.
0: Global. He also did The Outliers, which was a great book. I really enjoyed that. What was that one about? It's kind of broadly, this is very much distilling it down to one sentence, but this idea that if you, um, outliers are people like, you know, captains of industry. Oh, yeah. Steve Jobs, other, you know, geniuses. And if you you do, if you work for 10,000 hours at anything, then you're a genius at it. Then you're really good at it. Okay. So just give it a red hot go. The so Beatles. Just be a workaholic. Just work really hard, and you'll <laughs> it'll pay off. That is a very very simplistic definition of wow. the art. But he's rubbed a few people the wrong way oh. with what he's talked about in this podcast. What's he been going on about? Well,
1: this week online, and it was distilled into an article that um, I found on the New York Post. That was getting shared more than the podcast. <laughs> so the podcast is probably quite quite disturbed by the uh, I th- I lack think, of attention. I think that
0: you sharing this with me gave me a lot of viruses on my computer too. Oh so my many god! Because it's from pop-ups. the New York
1: Post. <laughs> This is the thing about American websites. They are awful. Yeah. Awful. That's
0: Stereo like, gum. It's like freezes my computer ah, the amount of
1: pop-ups. Just not interested. I don't go there anymore. Anyway, <laughs> this article is Malcolm Gladwell slams working from home. What have you reduced your life to? Malcolm Gladwell, he who previously or many, many years ago said um, – And this was taken from something else that he's written. I hate desks. Desks are now banished. He starts the day writing at home, but this is always done from his sofa using his laptop. I work better when I'm comfortable, he says. After a stint on the sofa, it's out into the world. So he works from home. Mm. And here he is deciding that the world probably should get off their asses and go back to work and go into the office. And, of course, it was met with a huge outcry online. And, look, I, I do understand the point that, Getting back to work does encourage those friendships at work and I think they are really essential yeah. for, you know, your work life and I think elements of that are really important. But I I, I think we've all discovered that working from home has a lot of advantages, particularly for women, mm. for people with families. Mm. It means you can get the work done but you can still have some sort of work-life balance in that you're not doing a two-and-a-half-hour commute every day. Uh, you don't have to buy all the clothes that you need for work, You do all the expensive lunches that you have. Have when you're in when you're just bored and you want to go and do something at lunchtime so you spend a truckload of money on a sandwich that's not worth it. So he's saying it's not in your best interest to work at home and he also said, I know it's a hassle to come into the office, but if you're just sitting in your pajamas in your bedroom, is that the work life you want to live? And I say to him, yes, I think sometimes that's totally fine and appropriate. And hes I ad- call them house pants, but sure, pyjamas works as well. <laughs> absolutely. I've started wearing them out. Um, he said, I'm getting really frustrated with the inability of people in positions of leadership to explain this effectively to their employees. If we don't feel like we're part of something important, what's the point, he said? If it's just a paycheck, then it's like, what have you reduced your life to? I... I just don't get. I found this
0: very condescending. Absolutely, particularly from, from someone a guy. who has <laughs> always worked from coffee shops and home, and has said on the record that he hates working in an office. I've got my, I've got more. Like you don't even have any experience in this game, dude. In,
1: in this other article from 2005, which was in the Guardian, I refer to my writing as rotating. I always say I'm going to rotate because I have a series series of spots that I rotate. Oh,
0: bloody get off it! There's
1: one on the lower east side. The waiters are all Australian, and they play the Smiths all day long, which I find so fabulous. Ah. I I always go there on weekends. (laughs) Then there are restaurants in Little Italy that I go to. I often go to these places in the middle of the afternoon. Then they'll let me linger. Hey, you know what, Malcolm? You know what that sounds like? Sounds like what we were doing when we were working from home. (laughs) If, but we couldn't leave our houses. And it's fine to do all of that. I celebrate it, yeah. but you can't then turn around and tell us that we've all got to go back to the office. And you can have a purpose without going into an office. I mean, goodness me, I don't go into an office every day. I've, I got, I work mostly from home. You're allowed, you're allowed to have a purpose. A building does not give you a purpose. I think that it also
0: distills down that um, idea of that, you know, you, when you're at home, you're alone, and when you go to work, you're social, and there's no other social interactions outside of that. It's very simplistic. Mm. And obviously, you You know, some people do need more, you know, maybe need a bit of encouragement. They're naturally more introverted and they, you know, could maybe do with some like forced collaboration in in some ways. But to assume that everyone is completely devoid of that sort of collaborative friendship mincing with people Mm. if they're not going to the office is, again, um, really short-sighted. I love the balance that I've got right now. I work two days from home, Mm. although increasingly one day from home. And then the other days I come into work, and I really like that balance because it, you know, frankly I get to spend time with Norman more, mm. which is
1: nice, absolutely,
0: aka family. But also it does cut down on those things where it's like, okay, well I can actually go for a jog this morning because I don't Instead have to be on the train for Do everything hour. else, yeah, all those other things, and I think that that brings, you know creates a richer life and a more diverse experience of life than just this really old school way of thinking about work which we seem to be snapping back to mm. this and it seems to be j- sort of drawn from a feeling of distrust again from employers of like if I can't see you and I can't log that you're working mm. then you're not working where i think that it was proved through the pandemic that people were working and productivity went up. So I don't know why we keep on going back to these really conservative ideas of where and how we should work. Because
1: there's buildings that need filling. Um, do you reckon
0: he's like sponsored by some of the, the real estate uh, companies of
1: New York? Yeah, possibly, actually, because like- New York was one of the hardest hit and people are probably still reticent to go back to work yeah. in a city like that. And, and look, I do understand that there are a lot of businesses that have struggled because they don't have the same amount of people going into the city centre. But maybe it is it is time for a rethink of how we live mm. in that city. Well, I thought we were
0: doing that, so it's why it's like yeah. frustrating when you see people going, but really, I know you've been doing that, but actually you should
1: go back here. Why well, just say step off, Malcolm Gladwell? Mm. Step off. With your gazillions and, and trillions of dollars and daily, daily different coffees at different cafes. Where they play the Smiths. Yeah. Sounds sad, actually. Yeah, I know. <laughs>
0: On the um, pandemic tip, though, there has been a rise in mm. naturism, yes. apparently, through the UK. And I want to thank our bang babe, Caitlin, for bringing this to my attention, um, visually and uh, literally, mm. through a great article um, in it The was Guardian. A, lo- a
1: surprisingly
0: long read about <laughs> nudists. <laughs> well, I want to I want to capture the start of it because I think it sort of sets the tone. Of this piece in The Guardian. It was summer 2021, and Nick Mayhew Smith pressed into the bosky depths of ancient woodland outside Hastings. When he got to the centre, he undressed and perched on an accommodating mossy log. Slowly, he recalls, nature started to quicken around him. It was like a romantic tableau of a nude in the woods, he says, except the naked human subject was carrying a packet of nuts and a sensible backpack. The pandemic had left the 53-year-old London-based guidebook writer run ragged with work and homeschooling, and a naked stroll in a quiet woodland seemed like just the ticket to restore his shattered nerves. And therein lies the drive and the rise, apparently, of naturism or nudists mm. in the UK, which seems to be a big thing. Yeah, I found this fascinating um, because it is interesting the way that certainly from our perspective, Miff, when we were locked down in Melbourne, I've never experienced so much nature. We really, I think, it was partially just being stuck inside and having the screens, and really being grateful for what we could mm. have. But I've never looked so much into the sky. I've never paid so much attention to the birds, smelt the air and been grateful for all the space Mm. around me and particularly being able to access green space more so than any other time in my life. So this taking it a step further and being at one with nature, being as naked as the birds and the animals
1: around you, it's really taking it to another level, isn't it? It is taking it to another level, but I can't get the image out of my mind. And man nude with a backpack on, like that's not... (laughs) Uh, that's not that's not naturism. That, that's just not nudism. You can't have a backpack.
0: <laughs> like, that's your, That's what you're pulling out of this article. I am because
1: the visual <laughs> is just wrong. Like, I can understand you've got to carry things, but that's why you have jeans with pockets.
0: <laughs> like, well, it's a problem with nudism, isn't it, or naturism, whatever you want to call it.
1: Where do you hold things? Like, exactly. Well, there's there is a special pocket <laughs> for some of us. <laughs>
0: This is a long article, and I think much like the Wild article that we talked about last week, there's lots of different people involved. There's an academic called Annabella Pollan, Mm. who is the author of a book called Nudism in a Cold Climate. I want to read that. And she talks about um, when naturism first emerged. It was after the First World War and the flu pandemic. There was a huge appetite to find new ways of living, explore new social structures, and to feel free. And maybe this does have a very tenuous but valid link Mm. to what we were just talking about when we're shaken up and gone, okay, something's just happened that's taken away all control of our lives, Mm. that we can't do anything about it, we're locked up, we're closed borders, there's so many things that we thought we took for granted and that's all been thrown out the window, what can I control and how do I do things differently?
1: Mm. Let's get the gear off. Yeah, I love that. And but and bodily acceptance too. Maybe that is something you can control by getting nude on a regular basis with others and seeing other people's it's bodies. It's a great equaliser. It is. And and I think the one thing I learned from doing that Spencer Tunic nude photo shoot years and years ago, turn of, at the turn of the century it was mm. in Melbourne. That's how long ago it was. And when I was in a sea of 5,000 bodies of all shapes and sizes and, and skin tones, we all looked the same. Yeah. Like it didn't matter. Yeah. Everyone looks. We look like, you know, flesh. A, a, a herd of something. <laughs> yeah. We do. And that was very liberating for a long time, I must say. Like, mm. I felt very confident, body confident after that for a long time. Now that's gone. So maybe I need to get back into nature. Maybe naturism
0: is your next yeah. step in life as yeah. you go through, you know, your big vibe shift. Maybe naturism um, yeah. at your property, got a big bottle
1: yeah, of land. It's a very,
0: every possibility a, the
1: neighbors wouldn't see you. I don't have enough tree coverage, though, I don't <laughs> think. Or should we say bush coverage? <laughs> I'm not ah! sure if I could get away with that. I reckon you could go for a bushwalk, yeah, quite literally out, where, out your way, and, <laughs> and, and just strip off and feel the breeze. I could go for a jump in the river. I mean, but what's the fine line between naturism and indecent exposure? Mm. Like that's where that's what I can't, I can't quite get my head around. I don't know what that line is, and and they say it's not about being an exhibitionist, but I, I don't know. There's still a little part of me that expects that there might be an element of that when you doing it on your own in the forest? Yeah, maybe you've got to do it in someone... spaces where it's protected, where you're not forcing your naturism on others. Yeah, because then that is actually just quite fri- frightening. Like if a man with a backpack in nude came walking towards me, I, 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 because he's got a backpack on, I would assume he's probably okay because he's a naturist, but I don't know. It's a bit weird. The fixation on the backpack is I just too much well, for that's me. Well, was from last week, the ick. Oh yeah, and the a ick. person running okay. with the one. So, <laughs> this is like <laughs> triple ick. This is like ick times twenty.
0: Anyway, it's a great piece. It's a strange piece. <laughs> um but I feel like this is in your future. Yeah, or yours too. Would you do it? Yeah, I do like getting naked. I feel like feeling the sun on my skin and the you know, the breeze and sunning and the your cold. yoni.
1: Do you do that one?
0: No, we've talked about that before. What? I don't sun my yoni. You've never tried it? <laughs> Yonic therapy? <laughs> A yonic tan. But I thought it was interesting in the article too that this is very much the domain of an older nudist sort of Mm. vibe that they're worried about the next generation because they're not coming up as they thought they would. So it is kind of the more baby boomer generations Mm. and maybe it is that kind of sexual revolution That was gone through and holding on to that or revisiting it at a point where, as we know, one of the great blessings of age is that you give less and less of a shit. Mm. You don't care about the things that maybe you were caught up with when you're in your 20s and 30s about body image and perceptions. It's just, you you know, you let it all go. Mm. So maybe that's part of it. Maybe we are all destined to be nudists (laughs) post-50.
1: Well, we are once we take our clothes off. We're all nude. That's
0: right, we've got a fashion update and this is an interesting one because instead of dropping new music, Frank Ocean, amazing mm. singer-songwriter, fashion icon, that's right, just great thinker, um, has released an interesting product through his Homer jewellery brand. Mm. He's put out a gold diamond-encrusted cock ring.
1: $25,000 cock ring. Yep, that's right. Beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. It's Would a beautiful you judge an, a
0: naturist if they were wearing a $25,000 cost. I would
1: say, yes, you'll just need to show that off, actually. Um, it's is, called a
0: H-bone ring, just in case you're wondering. H-bone. It's a, called an XXXL H-bone ring.
1: Oh, so you can only have it if it's XXXL, <laughs> is that right? You've got to be extra large or well, something? The,
0: the way that they um, advertised it on yeah. the Homer Instagram, the the image obviously was pixelated because otherwise it would be banned, but you can see there's girth there Yes, through the pixelation. You can see it is an XXXL yeah. model <laughs> modelling the 25K cock ring. That's right. Look,
1: I, I just don't understand this at all and I love it. Why? <laughs> right. There is no need for it. There is no no one's asking for it. People will buy it. Yeah. Um. Imagine that. Uh, yeah. Hello, darling. Happy anniversary. I got you something. <laughs> Twenty five thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah, it's a real move, isn't it? It's a real power move. Yeah. It's it's creating a market for uh, where there was none. Yeah. <laughs> I think. I don't know. I mean, I know people buy them. File under who asked for this. Yeah. I know people buy them and use them, but I don't really – I can't imagine you'd ever spend $25,000 on it, and now he's just going – Somebody will. Yeah. And I've done it. Yeah. Well, Drake's already bought a $2 million
0: necklace that he's put out on the same thing. I had to look it up and it is a chunky looking diamond mm. necklace, which he wore courtside to a basketball game. So I feel like Drake would buy this. Yes. <laughs> like, well, this is a very okay. big Drake move. Um, <laughs> but how you'll find out, I can't tell you. There no. you have it.
1: No. What, what do you do with them anyway? They, do you just pop them on and... Um, oh, I think okay. that's quite, probably a question for the hookup or another podcast. I <laughs> don't know if I want I to get into that. I genuinely that. don't know what, what you do with them. What do you do with them? I'm, call me out. Caitlin, are you, I don't Anyone want to. Anyone know? <laughs> you just put them on and then it just kind of fills up with, it gets like no, the blood doesn't move around or I something. I think there's a, blood, there's a blood, there's
0: something related to blood flow there. Okay.
1: Why don't you Google cock rings no! and how they work? I think that'll I'm help you I'm at the ABC. They'll knock me off the <laughs> internet if I do that.
0: Be surprised if we have a podcast after this. <laughs> Hey, before we get into the bang on for this week, I just wanted to share a, um, an email, as I mentioned, as I forecast in our bang box. We've been asking you if you've got any questions and, you know, some great questions deserve great answers. Uh, like this one from Kylie. Hi, Miffin Zan. A few years ago, I realised that an action I do is not done by anyone else mm. I've ever met. Mm. For context, a few years ago, I made up my breakfast crumpets and posted it to social media. Yep. Fury ensued. Oh, Oh, gee. Apparently, the lovely, smooth, flat side isn't the side you butter? The lovely, engineered-for-your-spread-of-choice side isn't the right way? (laughs) Who makes these rules is the question that Kylie has. I am shook. First of all, my partner does crumpets with Vegemite, which I don't understand. No, I'm here for that. Okay, we've had this conversation and we've got to agree to disagree. I'm a honey all the way. No,
1: no, that's a dessert. But. Buttering
0: and spreading on the flat side of a crumpet, what do you think all those little holes are for,
1: exactly, Kylie? I mean, I don't want to judge everyone no. to you know, each of their own. That's right. But I do understand now that she's pointed it out, the flat surface is almost perfectly spreadable, even better than toast.
0: Does it soak anything up? Exactly. Though?
1: I don't I can't see how it would, but maybe it has like the micro holes, so it does soak up <laughs> a little bit. But it's just that's the point of a crumpet is that it soaks up
0: the butter. I feel like everyone has got to get a crumpet this week and butter it on the other side. That's all I want. And just give it a go because maybe it squeezes through, like it soaks in the toppings and then it squeezes through like a little shower head Mm. of melted butter and honey or Vegemite
1: onto the lower gullet of your mouth. Oh, I like that. That's good. But I also think the holes underneath would then mean that if you've done excessive butter, which I always do mm. and I highly recommend, you never scrimp on the butter. In fact, you go overboard yeah. on a crumpet, that that would come through those big gaping holes, whereas if it's up the other way, kind of protects it like a, like a kind of little safety pocket so you'd never lose any ounce of butter. Again, I feel like this crumpet talk
0: is relating to everything
1: else yeah. we've talked about today. <laughs>
0: Safety pocket. Thank you for the uh, question, Kylie. <laughs> and but you're right, Kylie. Who does make the rules? Who no makes one. The rules? Do what you want. Eat
1: it however you want. Live your life.
0: I love that email from Kylie. Thank you. Thank you for the questions. I don't know if we've answered them, but you're surely going to have us eating crumpets this week. Yeah, I'm off to buy yeah.
1: some now. What are you banging on about? <laughs> um. Oh, I watched. I was going to bang on about a play because I knew it was going to be good because everyone in the world has told me how great it was, A Picture of Dorian Gray. Mm. Second last show was on Saturday. Had tickets, waited months and months. It got cancelled. No, <laughs> no! It's off in New York now, so I have to go to New York to see it. Okay, good, good excuse. Good excuse. Yeah, great. Good excuse. Um, no, but I watched uh, the Woodstock 99 documentary mm. that's on Netflix at the moment. It's called Trainwreck. I think there's another Woodstock documentary on there as well. Yeah,
0: okay. That's what I thought you were talking about because no. there is one on Binge which was put out by HBO, I believe. Yeah. This so this is, is a different this one. This is
1: a three-parter and it's it, – I, I haven't seen the other one mm. but this is new and it, it it's like watching H- Hell on Earth take place and how – and watching the organisers who came from the original Woodstock, mm-hmm. uh, 69, and who still had the approach of peace and love and – people coming together on a huge scale, and I'm talking 250,000 people. But the problem is they had it on an an old military airstrip, so it was purely concrete. concrete. Yeah. They had acts like corn and limp biscuit that were obviously going to attract a certain type of person. And whip people up. Yeah, and each night was the, the crowds were just whipped up in so many ways and by the end it was like being basically robbed for water, things like water, and in the end the water was unsanitary. It was the most filthy experience anyone had ever seen from what from what I can tell from the footage as well. And by the end it was essentially a riot. Things were burnt. There was explosions. There was awful rapes and sexual assaults, mm. which is kind of glossed over in this documentary and I think that's, that's one of the downfalls of it is that it was just it was almost like, oh, well, that's a given, you know, and they didn't go into a lot of detail uh, and i don't really understand why because that's a huge huge thing to happen in such a disaster area yeah. like um and a lot of people suffered it was just horrific like it was actually horrific and it's a discussion on greed it's a discussion on the stories we tell ourselves and the excuses we make for things these organizers just basically came up with excuses as to why. I mean, even talking about the sexual assaults, the organisers, that the, one of the, the original organisers said, well, the, with that amount of people, that would probably happen anyway. Oh, my God. I know. Like, law of the, averages. The no. justification for these things was appalling. Music should be a safe space. It should be a safe space. But up until that point, a lot of these things had not been discussed. Mm. And it was interesting to see uh, one of the women who's one of the main talking heads of the documentary said, it's so good now because our our girls don't have to or won't put up with what we put up with, particularly at that festival. Um, it was terrifying. Like I was like, "What? This is carnage!" It was like Lord of the Flies. Yeah. And, but it was it was always going to be. You might as well have lit a match and walked away. It was awful. Anyway, so yeah, it, it got a bit got a bit grim and long by the end. I was like, "Oh, please wrap this up. This is horrific." I'd, I would have left day one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it's uh, it's it's an interesting watch from a historical perspective, and to see how far we've come in terms of crowd safety, what's acceptable behaviour and what's not at festivals, how we structure festivals. It's it the the scene has changed a lot for the good. Yeah. But this was supposed to be the opposite of that. It was supposed to be you know peace and love. It's Woodstock. Yeah, and it was more like a bacchanalian orgy. You know, full on, at a military base. At a military base, surrounded by with no water. What's it called? Uh, Trainwreck, the Woods, uh, Woodstock '99 on Netflix. Mm-hmm. All right, not a fun time. Great, great recommend then. Yeah, but it's um, <laughs> but it's definitely very interesting if you're a fan of music and yeah. Oh, I love music docos. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, what are you banging on about?
0: Well, I'm actually, funnily enough, banging on about a music film, but it's not a doco. It's what the filmmaker is calling an immersive cinematic experience, and I think we might have talked about this when it was first. Mentioned because it premiered at Cannes. It is the David Bowie film Moon Age Daydream. Oh,
1: is this the one on the big screen? Yeah, and you get your seat rattles and everything.
0: Um, no, that's a certain cinema that you go to in the suburbs. But oh, okay, that's okay. okay. I, thought, I thought you'd have. I mean, I could you imagine.
1: can do that if you want. Yeah, but it is very much a film that
0: you should experience in the cinema, and it's. Opening and premiering this week as a part of the Melbourne International Film Festival. Uh,
1: are you doing that in conversation?
0: I'm doing it in conversation, full disclosure, with the director, with the director Brett Morgan, um, who also directed that film Montage of Heck, which was the Kurt Cobain film, which came out in 2017 uh, or 2016. And um, he has game in telling, you know, musical stories. He's done another doco on the Rolling Stones. But this is totally different. There's no talking heads. There's no you know, interviews with people reflecting on stuff. This is David Bowie sharing his story and quite literally his archives. The family gave Brett Morgan complete access to his archives of more than 5 million things. And David spent the last 30 years of his life recording everything himself, but also buying back memorabilia, quietly, anonymously at auctions so he just amassed this
1: huge personal archive <laughs> you know, i love that, that you've been online trying to buy something on ebay and you've got this guy who's just really persistent and his name's david bryan <laughs> david jones david jones <laughs> 60 whatever year is born 54 and he's just really persistent and you never sniping knew, you on ebay <laughs> and you never knew that that was david bowie
0: yeah he was there he just was uh, sitting at home
1: on his computer, just waiting, getting in doing a the countdown.
0: Absolutely stealing <laughs> everything you're trying to buy. But what it makes for is this ridiculously amazing film that I got to see a preview of, and I haven't stopped thinking about. Oh, that's beautiful! And it's going to open nationally in a month, mid September, and you should see this at a cinema because it's it is so beautiful, but also the sound of it is mm. incredible. He's worked with Tony Visconti, Bowie's longtime producer, and gotten all these stems from songs that just swim around in this, what is at times a chaotic film. You feel like you're on acid if you've ever done that. And you're in this kind of brain space of Bowie's where creativity knows no bounds. And even if you have no idea about Bowie or you're just a fair weather fan and you know a few songs, there is something in this for everyone because it's about Living your life fully from someone who loved life, loved living, and loved the process of creativity. So for him it wasn't, oh, I'm going to get to the end of this album and then release it and that's the payoff. For him it was about everything that goes along the way. He took himself all over the world. Remember, he used to live in Australia. He lived Mm. overseas in L.A. for a couple of years because he hated it so much he wanted to see what that did for his art. He took himself to uncomfortable places to see what it did for his creativity and that search for that filled his whole life and it was just – so inspiring hearing him talk about like what what are you going to do this is this is the time you have how are you going to spend it mm. and we're not going to be david bowie no one is david bowie and you're not necessarily going to be creative in that way but it just made me think so intensely about the time that we spend on earth and how we spend that time because it mm. is so finite Mm. And it's just beautiful and there's so much incredible concert footage and all these offcuts. Like you are going to love this. I remember you hosted a big outside broadcast when the David Bowie Is exhibition came to Melbourne. Mm. It was something that the V&A Museum in the UK in London Mm. uh, put on and then that exhibition travelled to Melbourne and that was an incredible exploration Mm. of his archives and I felt like I just learned so much more about Bowie from that and this film just builds on that but it's just this wild ride. So Moon Age Daydream, it's gorgeous. If you've got tickets to see it at MIF this week, enjoy it. Um, everybody else, make a make a date to go and see it at the cinema when it opens in September. Beautiful. It's just beautiful. I loved it so much. Oh, great. I found it so inspiring. Great. You need I'm, those films, don't you? You do. Yeah, Little Sparks. Little Sparks. Yeah. Little Sparks from Little Davy Jones. Yep. What do you think? Home is David,
1: uh, David, David Jones. Underscore. Underscore 54, <laughs> nine fifty four at hotmail.com.
0: You're bitter, aren't you? He sniped you one day. He got me. He got me. <laughs> ah, the best.
1: I'll see you next week. Yeah, see you next week. Bye. Bye.
0: Hang on.